Welcome to City Talks by Ford. Conversations with experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. Hi there, and welcome back to City Talks by Ford, conversations with the experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today, and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. I'm your host, Andrew Winston, Corporate Sustainability Advisor and author of the book Net Positive. And on today's show, we're talking about PUDO, or P-U-D-O, which stands for Pick Up, Drop Off. This is about all of the trucks and buses and bikes and things that are coming at our curbs every day. And we're talking about innovations in the logistics that are helping cities better manage their curbs. Joining me today is Washington, D.C.'s head of curbside management, Haley Peckett. She walks us through some of the latest pickup drop-off policies and programs cities are using to regulate curbsides, how automated and smart parking technologies are being implemented, and finally, data like curb data specs and how governments are using this exciting new opportunity to optimize and streamline the changing curb. Welcome, Haley. Tell us about your role at the D.C. Department of Transportation. What do you do there? Hi, Andrew. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm Haley Peckett. I am the Interim Associate Director of the Curbside Management Division here at District Department of Transportation, or DDOT, as we are called. And in that role, I oversee all the curbside space for this city of over 700,000 people and countless more goods delivery, people visiting, commuting, all the different activities that happen because all transportation starts and ends at the curb. So what's included in things that hit the curb? This is buses, rideshare, deliveries, bikes. I mean, everything, everything imaginable. All of that. And a lot of it is, is thinking about, you know, how people and goods access their destination. So when we think about curbside management, we're thinking about how do we take that space at the curb and make sure we are managing it in the best way possible to meet our goals. And so that means, you know, for us in our division, we're thinking about safe and equitable access to the curb. So do we have room for goods so that all the freight delivery, whether it's the packages or maybe it's the food delivery coming in, as well as people who really need that close curbside access because they might have disabilities or limited mobility, as well as just All the people trying to come and go to all their destinations, to their houses, whether that's by scooter and bike, by foot, by private vehicle, by a rideshare vehicle, by bus, all those things need to go to the curb. And there's so many demands on the curb at all times. And there's also people that are just trying to maybe eat lunch in an outdoor uh, restaurant or sit at a parklet. So there's lots of different things that we can do with our curbside. Well, yeah, I guess since COVID, the curb has become a lot more versatile, right? Well, so how how do cities think about this? What does it do to the flows of the economy and the kind of day-to-day life if the curb isn't managed well? And what's the flip side? What's the upside when it is? The good news is that the curb can be a great tool. I mean, it's 
where everything comes together. So there's so many opportunities and there's a lot of flexibility in terms of how we manage it. So we can think about managing the curve spatially or temporally to be able to meet our goals. And when I think about these goals, I'm actually going to reference, we just finished Move DC 2021, which is our long range transportation plan for the district. And it is driven by seven goals. Those goals are mobility, equity, safety, sustainability, project delivery, management and operations, and enjoyable spaces. And I'm really focusing on the goals here because whereas there's lots of private companies or individuals who have interest in the curb, our role as the public sector, our role as the city government is to say what is in the best public interest in terms of how we use our public space. One of the common misconceptions that we encounter is here at DDOT, but I think this is true across cities and across jurisdictions you know, people often think that the curb space in front of their business or their house belongs to them, but actually it's public space. It belongs to all of us the same way that the city park belongs to everybody. And so the more that we can think about how that space needs to, maybe it adjusts by time of day, or maybe it adjusts by the context that it's in, or maybe we need to charge for that space to drive certain types of behavior. There's a lot of different tools that we use, but we really need to think about what we want to achieve. And those are the the goals from our long range plan as well as some of the the mission and vision of our agency is how we start thinking about using that. So those, um, you said seven goals, right? Are they, they kind of all in sync? Do they work together? Are there ones that are kind of at odds that you have to figure out how to navigate around? That's a great point. And this is not true of just curbside management, but it's really true of all transportation. I mean, there's always trade-offs. There is limited capacity, whether it's the width of our roadway, the width of our sidewalk, you know, it could even be the the spaces and the a grocery store shelf. You're always having to make choices about trade-offs. And we use these goals to try to inform what trade-offs we make. So for example, we will often say safety comes first, but there's safety for different types of users. And we have to balance all of the different things that are going on. So one example might be, you know, we really want to have enjoyable spaces. And so enjoyable spaces might mean that there are lots of street trees, which also contributes to sustainability. But having that might mean that somebody who is trying to access a business might have to pull up a little bit further away because the roots of the tree or the tree is blocking their access. There's a lot of different trade-offs that we can make day to day. And I think that we try to look at the balance. But one of the things that we try to do when thinking about the, the goals and maybe that hierarchy that you're getting to is what is the context? So where we're in a central business district, a really dense area, our focus is on moving people and goods in and out quickly as opposed to vehicle storage. And so when we're thinking about that, mobility really comes up much more highly. Now we're in a residential area. Mobility is still important, but it's less important than, you know, people can use that curbside space for longer term storage. It makes more sense for that purpose. So in parts of the series we're doing, we're talking to other folks on the roads, you know, in and out of cities, congestion pricing. And there's this, you know, counterintuitive thing, especially kind of going to the suburbs of if you decrease roads, sometimes it increases flow. You can have this kind of counter effect and and vice versa. If you increase roads and think you're going to reduce congestion, it can increase it. Do you see that with like sidewalks and curbs? If you kind of widen the public walking or biking space that it actually helps the flow? What have you seen and kind of what's working? That's a good question. I actually, prior to being in this role, I've worked in project delivery and worked on large transit projects. So I have a lot of thoughts on bus lanes. I do think that it's, I have a healthy sense of skepticism about traffic models in many cities where we have 
reduced the amount of travel lanes for bike lanes and bus lanes. We've seen that, especially in a grid like city like DC, the traffic disperses and it sort of right sizes itself, if you will. If it becomes too congested to take a route because the capacity is reduced, people will divert to other routes or maybe choose not to make that trip or choose to make a trip another way. So I do believe that there's a role to play in kind of that induced demand. Curbside has an important role. And, you know, one thing that we do, a really low tech tool, we have a lot of tools and I can talk about some of those today, but a really low tech tool is the idea of rush hour restricted parking. During rush hours, as anybody who has ever been in a city or anywhere knows, traffic moves pretty slow. There's a lot of congestion. But if you go on that same road at 10 o'clock at night, you know, the road where you were inching along at five miles an hour, you maybe can fly through at 45 miles an hour. A lot of our crashes and traffic fatalities happen later in those later hours when there isn't as much congestion. And that's where rush hour restricted parking can come in. By reducing the number of travel lanes and limiting that capacity when you don't need it, we're actually making the road safer because we're reducing speeds and also, you know, shortening the distance that pedestrians might have to cross, for example. So that's a really low tech tool where we can use our curbs for that purpose. And and in my division, we focus on executing that. We leave it to the traffic engineers to tell us where those rush hour restrictions need to occur. Well, you mentioned some, you know, analyses and tools. So let's, uh, you know, in in this series, we we definitely get wonky and dive into the data because we're talking to people who love the data. How do you get data on curbside logistics? How is that? Just what kind of data are you collecting and what are some of the drivers? Well, let me start by saying that data is both a friend and a foe. So in this decade, we simply need to use data to make decisions. You know, we can't make decisions without data. And I think that our political leaders are getting more savvy and more interested in making sure that they can demonstrate that there's data behind those decisions. And there's so much great data available. I'll talk about some of those sources in just a moment. But one of the things that we haven't quite caught up on yet is that we need capacity and tools to collect and analyze huge amounts of data from disparate sources in real time. As it stands, we tend to focus on collecting data from very limited areas in a pilot type setting. So I will just note that all of these data sources, like the capacity to analyze it is critical to being able to do something useful with it. But where do we get our data from? We have about 10,000 parking meters on the street right now. We have sensors, we have cameras, including time-lapse cameras. But more importantly, I actually think we have all of these apps, some of which are third-party apps that are telling us where people are paying for parking, how long their parking lasts, when you have repeat visitors, where there's parking availability. And that also extends to things like GTFS feeds, where we know where the transit routes are coming or maybe where there's a delay. So maybe you start seeing delays and you say, oh, maybe there's double parking there. We've been doing a lot of pilots and some new technologies too that I can talk about that help us collect data in terms of using both cameras and sensors for individual parking spaces. But really our most widespread data is in terms of how the curbside is being used is some of our meters and those payment technologies. A second huge type of data we have, and this is actually something that's new for the district and I think pretty cutting edge for cities, is we've recently mapped in GIS all of our signs, all of our curbside signs for the entire district. It's really cool. We had something called SignWorks. We developed the tool. We used some artificial intelligence to pull in all the language from those signs and we're able to codify them and put them into different typologies. Did a huge amount of QAQC to try to get those relatively accurate. And now we're able to use that to do many things. But, you know, 
basically figure out where some of the different parking restrictions are and, and have those spatially mapped in a way that's pretty accurate. So we can look at a sub-geography, a neighborhood, and say, hey, here's the linear feet that we have of parking with this restriction type or these types hmm. of loading zones, for example. Well, that's interesting. Let's quickly break down the acronym. So QAQC is uh, you know quality control. You mentioned GIS. I probably always get this wrong. Geospatial information systems. systems and I've uh, also heard it, yeah. sciences be used. So it's ma- it's maps and data you know, combined, right? So you, that's really interesting. So I, you say that you're getting AI to tell you what the signs are. I'm guessing maybe it's all of us filling out those CAPTCHAs when we log into things and we have to say, what's a bike? What's a stop sign? Maybe we're the ones doing it for you. I don't know. I think that a lot of the, the AI that I've I'm familiar with for this technology was actually looking at recognizing some of the text and basic arrows because we had to figure out directionally where we are. And we have used those so that now we can pull that into maps. So one of the great things about GIS data is it can connect everything to a map. So we actually have entire data sets that don't exist in a database format. They only exist in a map-based format, which has been interesting. You know, when we are trying to talk to different systems in the city, some of the city agencies aren't caught up to where we are and their information is in a database because they don't work in maps as much. And so having those talk to each other has resulted in some challenges. So hopefully in the next 10 years, you know, everybody kind of catches up. What it's resulted in is the ability to come up with these linear maps or these zones where we can say, okay, where this right arrow starts and this left arrow ends, we can say this is a resident-only restricted parking zone, zone two permits. And that's able to take that, map it, and give information to residents with that permit type of exactly where their restricted parking is located. Hmm. We'll go one level deeper on the data wonky stuff, and then we'll kind of come back to strategies. But there's another acronym, CDS, Curb Data Specs. What are those? And you know, what are the frameworks for collecting this and using it? Yeah, the Curb Data Specs is, is information about what data is happening on the curb side. And specifically, I think the SignWorks is one of the examples of what we do, of what we can do, which is talking about what different curbside restrictions are at any given time. So in terms of CDS, you can have curb data in terms of what the uses are on the curb. In the district, we use signage for a lot of those uses. There's other, other cities that will use painting, but because we now have the ability to look at the signage, it'll say, how are these different, how is this different curbside space allocated? So we will use our signage, come up with the data that says this is the zone where we're allowed to have this types of uses. And then we also have different ways to measure occupancy and then frequency of use. And that would be getting more towards some of the payment data. There are other ways to do counts. Some cities have used algorithms where they've done manual counts or use sensors to collect over a larger area what is the t- occupancy trend, and then apply those algorithms in the future based on days and times. Can you tell us also about a program you tried out called Curbflow and what worked, what didn't, what'd you learn from it? Absolutely. So Curbflow was a great opportunity for us to try a pilot technology where we said, do commercial users, are they willing to pay a small fee to have a guaranteed space reserved at the curb? And I think the answer is in some places, yes. And for some users, yes. It was great for us to see, you know, one of our examples were these new emerging neighborhood centers where there was a lot of, for example, food pickup and drop off, where there's a lot of restaurants that were relying on takeout. So for those drivers to know, yes, I can pull up. And for this five minute time or 10 minute time, I can jump into the Indian restaurant, grab 10 orders, know that I will not get ticketed or be double parked. 
and then get right out. That was great for them. And, and as we've talked to some of those companies, we've gotten feedback on you know their willingness to pay and what makes sense for them. Other areas, I think it worked less well, either in areas where there wasn't as much demand or we learned a little bit more about where the demand was greater, less in the central business district and I think more in some of the neighborhood retail centers or emerging centers. I will say one other thing about some of these pilots that for us as a public agency, we have the responsibility to go back to those goals, to weigh those goals and kind of understand So as cities, we are seeking ways to make these technologies and make these pilots scalable in a way that aligns with our goals. So Curbflow is a great example, giving us some really important information about what type of assurances and reliability some of these commercial companies would like or some of the individual drivers would like and their willingness to pay for it. However, for the city, we also want to make sure that our policies are equitable So for example, it's important that we own and control the devices that are doing automated enforcement, which is a new technology we haven't discussed yet, in a way that's accountable to the public so that we're conducting enforcement in a way that's equitable. That can be tricky because it means we need to purchase and deploy devices on a much larger scale than what we can do in a pilot. Interesting. So you've got some automated systems going on. So let's talk kind of broadly about smart parking technologies. What does that look like and who's using them? This goes back to the data that we were just talking about. Smart parking technologies are great at both using and providing data to help us make decisions and manage our curbsides. So one of the big things that we are looking at across the district is automated enforcement in general. So as a district, we want to do more automated enforcement for moving violations. It's helpful in terms of making our roads safer as well as being able to do enforcement in a way that's blind as to who the driver is and kind of reduces the bias on the part of the enforcement officers. So automated enforcement for parking is a great next step. It increases our capacity greatly. It also helps us identify patterns and figure out where to station enforcement officers in the future when we start seeing these pilots come into place. So for example, we did a recent pilot where we put up two cameras in a bus lane in Columbia Heights near a really congested area where a lot of things are coming together. And we were able to identify several dozen violations every day of vehicles that were parked in a bus lane or a bike lane and effectively making things less safe and less reliable for those bus riders. This technology would then send violations directly to vehicles using a license plate recognition technology. We are also looking at smart parking technologies to streamline payment. So one example is multiple vendors and multiple ways that people can pay for parking. And eventually there could be more multimodal payment platforms as well as something where you might have be billed after the fact. You might pull up to a curb, a camera kind of recognizes your license plate in the same way that you would get billed by going through a toll without an easy pass or a smart pass. They would send you a bill that says, hey, you were parked here. That gives us a lot of ability to do dynamic parking pricing without a lot of enforcement. So one challenge that we have is with non-automated enforcement is it's really hard to enforce something that's a 5 or 10 or 15-minute parking limitation. So that was a challenge when we have food delivery drivers or freight. Sometimes people are just in and out in a short period of time, but our enforcement officers can't necessarily sit by every single zone in the city and make sure that those time limits are upheld. Now, if you had a technology that could say, it's free for the first five minutes, but once you exceed five minutes, I'm going to start charging you 
$5 a minute. Well, that's going to add up pretty quickly and you're going to have the monetary incentives to get in and out a lot faster and thus keep that curbside space freed up. So that's a great potential Mm. for us in certain situations. Yeah, it sounds a lot like we've talked in other conversations about, you know, the dynamic congestion pricing or the flow pricing. I've seen it in Singapore where it changes, you know, minute to minute by number of axles as you're coming into different parts of the city. So what are some of the kind of exciting policies and programs that you're seeing cities implement on this curbside management? And this could be anywhere. I mean, globally, not just D.C. Absolutely. There's a lot of exciting technologies that have proven that they're viable in small settings. And so this idea of being able to charge dynamically or bill somebody or do automated enforcement, those can work really well in a pretty small setting. I've yet to see cities deploy these on a very wide scale. And I can talk a little bit about more about why that is in a few minutes. But one of the things I think that cities are doing really well right now, and this is a really critical first step, is collecting a lot of data that needs to feed into some of those algorithms and feed into some of that analysis, which is going to enable us to set these policies more progressively in the future. So for example, the more we know about the average length of a freight delivery trip, as well as who is occupying our commercial loading zones, the better we can set policies for those zones. One example here in the district is right now, almost all of our commercial loading zones have a standard two-hour limit, and they tend to be occupied by commercial vehicles that are doing services, whether it's a janitor or a shredding service, as opposed to somebody that's making a delivery. And we have to update our rules and legislation to allow for that 30-minute loading zone, but we also have to change our pricing accordingly. And having the data that demonstrates this is the length of the trip and this is where those types of trips are needed, for example, by restaurants and by multifamily residential buildings where there's an Amazon deliverer that's making multiple package deliveries, that's really helpful for us so that we can set policy that actually works as opposed to providing on-street parking where those could be accommodated elsewhere in off-street garages. I think that there's other cities and smaller cities I've seen a lot more push towards using the curbside spaces completely dynamically. And that's something where we are talking about flexible zones where it could be a bus loading zone, it could be a bike lane, it could be a parklet. There's ways that you can really use that space in a lot of different a lot of different manners. I've seen a lot of other cities doing some really cool things where they are focusing on their bus and bike corridors first but also recognizing and mapping that over a freight corridor. And then the streets either become bus only or maybe become bus and freight only, but the designated curbside spaces for freight and for passenger loading are very predictable. So they're systematic. You know to go to the Northeast corner and that's always where you're going to find your taxi or that's always where you're going to pick up your food for delivery. And once you have those expectations set, it's a lot easier for all those systems to operate. Unfortunately, now where most cities are is a little bit of the Wild West. So you've got so many drivers coming in. And when we get the proliferation of the Uber Eats and DoorDash and Lyft, and there are thousands of independent contractors that may not be expecting a certain set of rules, the clearer that we as cities can be about making these systems work, about making the expectations clear, you know, that's a great goal for us to head towards. And the data that you're talking about before having that data is going to help us create policies to get there. Well, just from the things you're describing, it, I would imagine in the last you know five, 10 years, the, the mix of what's happening must be really different now, right? I mean, before there were trucks, they came in to deliver to businesses, there were taxis, 
there were buses and now there's, you know, hundreds of Uber and Lyft drivers. There's, they just said Uber Eats. There's people buying much more digitally, especially since the pandemic started. I mean, it just seems like it's a completely different interaction in these cities, right? Yeah, that's a great point. And one really good example is we have this PUDO program. It stands for pick up and drop off. It's something that we started as a pilot back in 2019. It was really popular. And the idea at the time was that the PUDO would be used primarily for people that were doing pickup and drop off for passengers. So ride share vehicles, whether they're going to a concert or just being dropped off by a restaurant, they were really considered as mostly passenger loading. And there would not be a need for the driver to leave the vehicle because the driver would be the ride share driver and the passenger would just get out. We found during the pandemic that that's flipped immediately. People stopped taking those ride shares, but so many drivers switched to moving to food delivery Mm -hmm. and they needed to get out of their vehicle. And so the regulation in terms of how we enforce that is different. If you have a driver staying with their vehicle, that's really different than somebody effectively parking, even if they're only parking for five or 10 minutes. And so we had to switch the way that we thought about it. So for our PUDO program, we had a proliferation, just so many restaurants and businesses that said, please, can you give me a PUDO here for me to stay in business? I really need all these drivers to have easy, predictable access to my business so that they can come get the food or go to the residential buildings to drop it off. And we start saying, whoa, this is getting to be more than we can enforce. So we really had to think about how are we going to enforce these PUDOs? How are we going to make it work? And where do they belong? And then I think we actually now have a great process. We're getting ready to finalize and make the program permanent in a way that we can say, here's where PUDO zones go. Here's the guidelines that make it work for delivery of goods or food, as well as for passengers. And here's our enforcement mechanisms. That's great. So, you know, my work is in the kind of seven goals of your system, kind of centered around a few of them around sustainability and equity and things like carbon footprint. I'm just curious, you know, the flows of the city, the amount of idling or not has a huge impact on, you know, air quality and and carbon emissions. Have you measured this? Have you guys looked at the benefits of the differences of, you know, in certain policies, if you get the flow moving better, what that does for general health in the area and for the the kind of carbon goals of the city? So... We here at DDOT have not measured that. I know that there's been some great research in the area, and I would absolutely love to be able to highlight that. I do know that we have partners at the Department of Energy and the Environment that created a couple plans about carbon neutrality as well as sustainability that have really specific carbon goals and have looked at transportation emissions related to that. I do have a few things that I can point to that really talk about how transportation is really critical here. I don't have specifics on some of that idling and double parking, but I do know that there's been a lot of work done in that area. That's great. I think I think we're going to probably all need more and more data and sharing it. I imagine also sharing with the private sector would be helpful as there, there's so much of the demand for the curb is coming from the FedEx and UPS, the big guys, and now the smaller, you know, kind of ride sharing companies. And that's makes it a data challenge, right? Seattle has the Urban Freight Lab, and they've done quite a bit of work partnering with the private sector. So that's a real model to look towards in terms of sharing of curbside spaces. One thing that you know we found is there's been some interest in doing a cargo bike pilot for those last mile cargo deliveries, freight deliveries here in the district. And we really need partnership from the private sector in terms of use of private garage space as well as some other private infrastructure to make this happen. So we have a great supportive network of business improvement districts that have been partnering on finding solutions here. 
And I would just give a shout out to the work of the DC Sustainable Transportation Group, as well as a lot of the business improvement districts that are working on finding freight solutions here. So it sounds like from a few things you said that we're going to see fewer kind of permanent parking spaces in cities going forward and moving them into lots or vertical setup so that you have more space for all the coming and going. That's probably a, a good thing because I, you know, I lived in New York City for a long time and that kind of going out and switching your car side to side. And I mean, it's really a nightmare. <laughs> so I, I kind of like the idea of there being fewer actual parking spots. And it, it seems like also COVID has obviously changed things. And do you think things like, you know, restaurants taking up curb space, do you think this is all pretty permanent now? So we actually had a great post-COVID working group thinking about curbside management back this spring with participation from across DDOT. It was really fun to think about what the future holds. Pudos are pickup and drop-off zones and streeteries are here to stay. A lot of people love them. A lot of businesses love them. But we also heard that you know it's important to make sure that we maintain other parts of our goals that are articulated in Move DC or that residents have articulated. And that means making sure that our streets are safe. So that might mean including more parking or other curbside spaces so that there are safer curbsides for everybody or maintaining parking in residential areas where people do rely on their cars. So there's a lot of pieces that go into this. And I think that one of the things that we're going to do is just more collaboration. We have to be interdisciplinary. I mean, we can't think of ourselves as only wearing a parking hat or only wearing a transit hat. I think we really have to work together and think about ourselves as a multimodal city. And the pandemic has changed that. I mean, in some cases, it's made people more reliant upon cars. But in other cases, you know, it's made people realize that there's a lot of flexibility and how they get around the city and how they think about what transportation means to them has changed. And people are just, they have a more flexible mindset. You know, they realized I've lived through this global pandemic. I've gone through all this change. I'm not going back to what normal is. So there's so many opportunities for us to embrace a lot of changes. And I think doing so in a way that aligns with our goals gives us a lot of opportunity to be more sustainable, to create more equitable cities and to create safer cities. And our curbside is where that all started ends. That's a great place, I think, to kind of close. So let me pick up on that and this kind of idea of a more flexible people. Glad to hear that. That doesn't seem very common these days, people getting more flexible, but the multimodal city, the kind of where we're headed. So we're asking everyone to kind of think and say, if you were sitting in your apartment, looking at the curb or you're driving through and it's 20 years from now, 15, 20 years from now, what do you hope to see or what do you expect to see? Well, I'll be an optimist here and we're in the nation's capital. So if anywhere should try to be the first to do it, I really hope it's us. I would love to see lots of transit and bus lanes because fundamentally, if transit is reliable, people don't need to rely on private vehicles as much. And we just, you know, we have limited space on the street. So let's put it into shared uses that will make our cities more equitable and allow people to just access more jobs, destinations, schools, food, all that good stuff that people like to be in cities. I also think that there's going to be less stuff on the street. So some of the signs and meters and physical assets that we see a lot of now, I think we're going to come up with new technologies and new ways to communicate that, whether it's on your phone that you sort of say, hey, this is where I am. You know, those things will become more asset light, which I think will make a more enjoyable space, more space for pedestrians, more space for art, things like that. I also think our curbside zones are going to be more dedicated towards short-term uses, especially in our commercial districts, and that there's going to be automated payment. And as more and more people get on smartphones, I mean, it's something that we're seeing here across income spectrums. That's something that we see in Europe of just being able to take 
residential streets and use them for play. I would love to have my kids be able to run around and play on the streets in areas that are currently just used for car storage and let residents get to choose if they want to see some of that happen on their streets. So that's my optimistic vision. And uh, we'll see. We'll see how far we get there. That sounds great. I think a lot of the future that people envision is in some ways going back, you know, kids in the streets, you know, we're kind of finding ways to get back to some of the things we had when things were maybe a little less busy. So thank you so much, Haley. This has been a really interesting conversation about this, you know, incredible intersection of our lives as we cross from sidewalk to street and into our apartments and houses from the public sphere. So thank you so much for coming here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Andrew. Thanks, everyone, for listening to City Talks by Ford. And thanks again to Haley Packett for talking to us about the radical new ways cities are changing how we look at and utilize our curbsides. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Andrew Winston, and thanks again for listening to City Talks by Ford.